0: Welcome to This Girl Cam, where we chat to wonderful women doing fabulous things in pharma. I'm Liv Nixon, and today I'm talking to Jessica Schull, Director of Digital Therapeutics for iCorp Pharma. Jess is without a doubt a thought leader in the digital health space, having worked in the industry for two decades. Born in Germany and having spent time working and travelling all over the world, including spending three years in Paraguay keeping bees, Jessica's going to tell me her story and share the experiences that shaped her purpose in digital health and therapeutics. So let's get going. Hi, Jessica. How are you? Hello, Liv. Good to be here. It's fabulous to have you on the show. Thank you for taking the time. I do appreciate it. No problem. So to kick us off, Jess, please could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background?
1: Certainly. So I'm Jessica Scholl. I'm an American, but living in Spain, and have been working in the digital health slash digital medicine pharma space for the past 20 odd years. And yeah, I have a varied background in that I was born in Germany, moved to England, then to the US, and spent some years in South America and Paraguay working with bees, and then did my whole grad school thing and realized that healthcare and the The not-so-common side of healthcare was what interested me, and I became a medical illustrator. So that's kind of what set off this whole foray and excursion into digital health, because when I started my graduate program at the Medical College of Georgia in the U.S., medical illustration was going from paper and these silver point, like these really cool artistic methods, into digital and 3D animation and Photoshop and all these cool things that it was all software. And so I had to quickly learn how to use all these programs. And it became evident that this was a way to not only create content, but share and learn and, and increase awareness for patients and physicians. So from there, I just expanded and expanded. And now I'm actually director of Digital Therapeutics, at a company called Vicor Pharma, which is a Swedish pharma company and very small, but very dedicated. So it's a great team. And because I'm the digital side, but within a very small pharma company, I get to see both sides of drug production as well as digital medicine production. And it's been just fascinating.
0: It it sounds it. (laughs) Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, first of all, I do want to delve into your time in Paraguay, so maybe we should start there and then work our way through. So tell me a little bit about what that was like those three years and some of the experiences you had that perhaps shaped your purpose now, I wonder.
1: Yeah, I think it really did have a big impact, bigger than I think sometimes, because I was sent there to teach beekeeping, which is a valid agricultural endeavor because it's a country that. Usually like the main crop is cotton, but cotton is a very toxic crop to farm, especially if you are with a hoe and a set of oxen for plowing. And so you're down in there with the chemicals and it, it's, it's very bad for people's health and they only can get one crop a year. So beekeeping was meant to bring new income to especially women of, of communities because they could go out and find what are unfortunately killer bees, but they are wild. You go out into the, you have to go out and find them. You catch the queen, and then you can bring the whole hive home, and it produces honey every year. And you can sell one liter of honey, and at, and at the time that was for the same price as for a hundred kilos of cotton, and wow. so it, it made a lot of sense. And and with one liter of honey, you could buy milk for a month. It was it was a really good endeavor, but. Also because it's color bees, people aren't very into it and so, <laughs> so there I can tell a lot of stories about getting stung and just uh, yeah how how that all went but i we're working with very basic equipment like chainsaws and mosquito nets. We didn't have any yeah. proper equipment so i I realized yeah in addition to that kind of work, healthcare was a big issue for people, and so I worked with the community that where I was living in very, very rural Paraguay with no electricity, no water, no nothing to develop a nursing school. And that was because I helped them also finish a health post that was in the community. So we got got all the cement and the bricks and the whole thing, and we got it built, but then there was no one to staff it. And so I thought, yeah, great, so <laughs> we're going to have to make a nursing school. So we did. And the first, unfortunately, it took long enough to to create the school that when I left, the first class was incoming and they graduated after I'd already left. It was 25 people who had the minimum requirements. They had to have at least a third grade education and and some of them had high school. And they really were so dedicated and learned in the space of one year to be a very basic kind of first level nurse so they could work in their own local health communities. And so it was a really, the whole experience there was, they taught me a lot about what's really important, about conserving resources, about Living without water, even without running water, it was it, everything was such a learning experience, but also just how health systems work and how some people are kind of left behind and how to broaden access for people. That that really was the first hands on experience I had with that. And I think Paraguay has developed a lot since then. It's been 20 years. I'm sure now everybody has mobile phones and Internet, but I mean, I don't know, but I, I suspect uh, yeah. more at least than when I was there. Yeah, it, it, I still see similarities in countries, even like the US, there's still not access for people. And so it's really shaped my thinking of medicine, like a medicine, like I'm in a very, very tech oriented, super cutting edge side of medicine now, but I am very aware of that other side.
0: So do you think that has shaped how you work now and the the certain projects that you put your passion into? Do you feel that that was shaped back in those days?
1: Yeah, I think it allows me or it gave me a primer, let's say, on being able to see other people's perspective. So I may assume that everyone can look up their own medical record on their phone, but I know from experience that what I can do is not what everyone else can do. And also when it comes to designing of clinical studies, it's like being able to have the patient perspective and really place it in context in terms of what city, what country, what system you're talking about, like how people approach access, and whether they can even be advocates for themselves. And even here in Spain, I have to say, I mean, it's a wonderful healthcare system, considering the very few resources that they're given. Because I worked at a hospital here in Spain for many years, and those are phenomenal healthcare professionals. I mean, really, about my role models, but they don't have the top line, super funded resources that, that the U.S. has access to, but they, but they treat patients well. However, the patients themselves don't always know what questions to ask and are, are sometimes too embarrassed to ask. They, they believe that the doctor knows best and I, I'm just going to go home and not even read what the, the, the report says. And so they don't, they don't advocate for themselves as strongly as they could sometimes. And yeah, just being aware of all that I think has shaped a lot of what I'm doing now in terms of patient engagement and understanding a patient journey.
0: And I suppose that's shaped by different cultures as well, that relationship with the healthcare professional and how accountable they are for their own health.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think especially now with access to internet and, and Google and chat GPT, who knows? I mean, there there are many more resources and patients are becoming more aware and savvy and many more are interested to actually know the mechanics behind a pathology. But it's still, yeah, I think it does depend a lot. And I don't know how it is. I think it must vary a lot from the U.S. to, say, Japan or someplace in in sub-Saharan Africa, as opposed to Norway, of course, like you have differences everywhere as to what people feel comfortable asking and what they can and what they're given, I suppose, the awareness to ask about.
0: So tell me a little bit more about your journey into digital therapeutics and what was it in particular that inspired you to pursue this as your (laughs) career?
1: That's a very good question because when I first heard about digital therapeutics, I was in digital health. So this was using continuous glucose monitors and real-time glucose monitoring for care of type 1, people with type 1 diabetes. And we were doing things like cycling across Europe with these connected monitors to ensure the safety of patients in that way. It was a very sort of visual and physical showcase of, of what digital tools can do for patients in that sense. But digital therapeutics was something entirely new, so in two thousand and fifteen, when I first heard of these kinds of products, I thought, software, how does software treat somebody? But if you think about it, I mean, especially with AI the way it is now, I mean, you can have treatment, you can have a therapist who is is giving you your your cognitive behavioral therapy through your phone that, that that's not that's no longer something that is so foreign and so I think because I was so involved in aligning healthcare systems and patients and developers and trying to... I'd always loved the helping the translation happen between the different stakeholders. I thought, well, this is so special and so specific. I've got to get involved with this. So I i did that and I became involved with the digital therapeutics in 2016 as an advisor and then 2017 or 18, I think I became full-time. But its it's just... The natural evolution, I think, of where digital health is going. I think all aspects of digital health, for instance, from telemedicine, which is just online video conference medical visits, all the way through to digital therapeutics, it's all valid and it all has a place in the system. It's just a matter of organizing it well and letting everyone understand how how it works and that it's safe and that we can protect their data no matter where it is, that kind of thing. To make it all work more efficiently for especially national healthcare systems.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, on that note, then tell me what excites you most about it, though, looking forward over the next five or 10 years. What are the things that get you really excited for the future of digital therapeutics and digital health in general?
1: Well, I think only now are the big pharma companies and national healthcare systems and patients themselves fully aware or becoming still fully aware that these products even exist. So I see over the next five years that countries like Germany have already come up with systems to integrate digital therapeutics into their national healthcare systems. But now France is coming online with their uh, sort of reimbursement and, and adoption policy and framework. The UK already has one and and becoming more and more inclusive and mainstream, and so in the next five years, I think it will just be second nature. Actually, things happen pretty fast in digital therapeutics, so I think that's that's fairly easy to to predict. But I'm hoping as well, and my my big hope here is that the way that digital products, including drugs, sorry, I should say medicinal products, including drugs and digital therapeutics, everything has to have clinical evidence and. In order to get this evidence, you have to do clinical studies. And every clinical study has to have an endpoint, if not six endpoints, meaning secondary endpoints. And those endpoints have been the same for about 50 years. So my big hope is that we can work together as a global community and agree on new endpoints and new ways of evaluating products and come up with ways to evaluate and assign a value based on new kinds of endpoints and health economic outcomes, because it's changing so fast, we need to change the way that, that things are regulated and evaluated as well.
0: And you think that there is appetite for that now?
1: I think so. I mean, it's never going to be fast. These health, the HTA bodies, which are responsible for evaluation of products in Europe and DA in the US, and you know, they're not fast moving, but they're trying and they're learning and One of the greatest experiences with my time at the Digital Therapeutics Alliance was a gathering of about 10 national HTA bodies around Europe. And just having them in the same space, we were all online just during COVID, talking about the way they view products and how they evaluate products and sharing experiences and best practices. That was huge for me, just having that conversation and that they could speak to each other. I think it hadn't happened before, not for that reason. And so, yeah, I think there's appetite and willingness. It's just everyone's just so busy. I <laughs> think it's part of the problem. So, yeah, we need yeah. to make nine day weeks or something.
0: Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I talk about a lot on this show are sliding doors movie and or more specifically pivotal moments that have perhaps shaped in your personal life perhaps that have then gone on to shape your career and your life in general. Do you have a specific moment in time that you consider to be your most pivotal?
1: So yeah, I was thinking about this. I think my my first job out of grad school was quite pivotal just because I was sort of a, a naive like, <laughs> student and and really into the artistic side of of bio visual visualizations but going into washington dc and really seeing how funding could work and the interest and great emphasis that could be placed on creating new kinds of healthcare technology that that was eye-opening and i was responsible for creating a product which was basically a set of arms But they were three-dimensional arms. And within each arm, I was building veins and arteries and bones and mapping the skin on each of these models to make it look like an older person's arm or a child's arm or a a geriatric arm to be tested with a needle that would then pierce these arms and be like an IV trainer, how how to insert an IV. And so... Yeah, the whole experience was was really eye-opening. And that was like the basic product. And then from there, it went on to other things like tourniquet placement and so forth, and then and surgery. So yeah, that was just learning all the pieces that were involved. Like you had to have a surgeon's perspective to get the colors right in the virtual operating room. You had to have the you know, haptics engineers to tell you the the how much force should be placed to actually mimic the force of a needle going through skin. I mean, all of these things were so new to me. So that was oh, no. that was really pivotal in the sense that yeah, I'd come from art and I was going very much into sort of engineering and sort of NASA level. <laughs> so what was to me like, re- very, very yeah, eye-opening.
0: So Do you think if you hadn't done that, you'd have taken a different route? Do you ever wonder an alternative life that you might have lived? <laughs>
1: Well, it's funny because I do see still a lot of my medical illustration colleagues on LinkedIn and so forth. And I know one, I mean, she's fabulous. She works out of Denver and does these amazing medical legal illustrations. So showing why, what happened with somebody in a car accident, like what kind of bones broke and why. And then another friend is doing amazing animations, like explaining how coagulation works, how a certain... Surgery may work. They're still doing amazing things. It's a bit far removed from from me now, but still in the same genre, let's say. So yeah, it's it's nice to think about how it could have been, but yeah, I, I very much enjoy what I'm doing, and it, it's so challenging. And just being able to learn every day is is fabulous. I think because one thing that convinced me it was okay to leave medical illustration was that it was sitting behind a computer all day, moving pixels around, which you, you, in the end, you have a beautiful creation, but it's definitely hours and hours and hours behind the computer.
0: Yeah. So talk me a little bit about gender balance in digital therapeutics and in the industry. So Paul Sims put quite an interesting post on LinkedIn recently about female representation. I, Before yourself, I also interviewed Francesca Wootke, who I think you are linked to as well from Health. So another yeah. significant female in the digital therapeutics world. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that female representation piece in that particular part of the industry. Where do you think we are with that?
1: So it's interesting. I mean, I guess I don't think of myself as female first. I mean, I think of myself as what I do and... and and who I'm, I'm surrounded by maybe, but I don't even know what the breakdown is. I never looked into it, but I just assume from statistics that there are probably more males and females in digital just because that's how it always has been, but it's probably changing. And at my company, we're pharma, but we're, I believe, 80% female, which is really nice. And no one minds. I mean, it's not as if there's there's an imbalance the opposite direction. So I think I don't I don't feel that I've ever had a problem or that I've had to state my need as a female, that I need to be heard more. I think I'm heard a lot. <laughs> and I'm quite noisy, so that, that helped. But I do have to say, like, being in Spain, it's been a bit different. So this is a country that had a dictator for many years and is only just now reaching where the rest of Europe has been. And so there's still a lot of sort of latent, what do you call it, machismo? And yeah. And one job I had, it was, it was a bit overt. Yeah, it was was a bit shocking. I I did not expect that in the year 2015. Yeah, I think it, it has to be addressed, but also just you move on regardless. I mean, that's not why I changed jobs, but it was something that I had to deal with pretty much every day. And so... I think coming from the U.S. as well, like they were not at all used to the way I am. And so maybe it was a, a dual sort of <laughs> culture shock. But it's it's yeah, I think it's a global issue. It's not just in digital. It's not just in medicine. It's a global issue. So it's something that I'm aware of and, and definitely don't take for granted that I think I do have a fairly a, a, a position and a voice that I do feel like I have equality.
0: Yeah. Do you think it makes a difference working in an organization now that is 80% female? Does it feel different in terms of priorities, culture, to where you've worked in other places? Or do you think it's almost irrelevant?
1: I think more than the gender balance, it has more to do with it being a Swedish company. I mean, I think I've only worked in a few countries. Well, I mean, Spain, Italy, Paraguay, the U.S. and Sweden. And so of all those countries including the US Sweden is the most I guess honest and real and genuine and so so I think it's has a lot to do with just being Swedish. <laughs> and I, I it's not just my colleagues the entire country is very serious and well run and what they say they're going to do they do and I'm sure there are other things that happen in the country but it's been such a good experience in general and so I think there's a lot to be said the way that culture is and there's a big emphasis. I had to read a book about this. It's called The Nordic Way of Everything, because I was puzzled as to the difference. There was a bit of a cultural difference, but I couldn't figure out what it was. And it turns out that part of it is just this natural tendency toward consensus and wanting to make sure that you've asked all the experts and that make sure that it's not a risk aversion. It's just making sure that you've looked at all the options. Everyone agrees. Okay, now we move forward. And it doesn't take a long time. They're, they're very efficient as well. So it's it's a culture that works well, I think, for, for pharma.
0: On a more personal note, talk to me a little bit about how you perceive success versus failure and when you know you've achieved success, your thoughts around that.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a great question because one of the things that made me leave the US was this constant need to work. And just because you're at the office, it doesn't mean you're successful. And just because you put in more time than someone else does not mean yeah, you've, you've had a better life or more successful. And so I thought about this a lot and there are things I miss about the US, but that is not one of them. And I think now what I can define as success for myself is more about having this collaborative energy So if there's a project or there's an idea that we have and there's support behind it and everyone's interested and collaborates and moves it forward, to me, that's success. And if you can see it to the end, even better. And so that sort of momentum and, and alignment with your colleagues and just feeling, that to me is success. And if you can get this fabulous result or this product or whatever at the end, even better. But I think the failure on the other side of that would be just giving up. So to me, failure, failure is not that the, that something didn't work out. Like maybe your, your test fails or maybe your product has to be redesigned. But to me, the failure is giving up, not the fact that maybe it didn't work the first time.
0: Have there ever been moments in your life when you, you think you have? failed in that way in in those terms that you define it or things that you reflect back on that you wish you'd done differently well I do wish in a
1: way that like when I was in grad school my program was two years I got an MS in medical illustration had I stayed I felt like I could have gotten my MD and and done that so I don't see it as failure but I see it as a I didn't want to repeat the first two years I'd already done of pathology and physiology and histology and all of that, so I just shelved the whole idea. But yeah, it, it's it was interesting because at the same time, my my mother was going through medical school. <laughs> like she's always been a big role model for me. I mean, she she passed away some years ago, but she went back to school when she was in her fifties, and she she did it, I and mean, it was a monumental effort, especially at that age, to to go through the study and then also the residency and so forth in the US, especially as an older woman. And so I didn't pursue it. And yeah, I wonder what that would have meant. But I also see the the, the burden that physicians can carry and what, what she had to work through every day. So yeah, it's interesting. I don't know how things would have been different, but I definitely gave up on that idea when it was presented.
0: Possibly one of those other pivotal moments that we talked about. Yeah. What do you think you're most proud of, Jessica?
1: Hmm. Well, I think there's a division maybe between what I'm proud of about work, which is just being, in in some case or to some extent, being a reference for digital health and digital therapeutics. I mean, I like I like that role. It, it's diminished a bit in the last year or so, just because I'm not so much on the International scene like I was in my previous work, but also just being in this part of the part of the world. Like I'm in, I'm in a little town outside Barcelona, and I've been here for about ten years all told. And it now just really feels like home. I mean, that I think was a was an achievement and something that I'm proud of, just because you know I have no family here. (laughs) My partner is here, but he's from here, so so that all. Yeah, it took learning two languages and really fitting into a new healthcare system and education system and way of living. Like I, I can't have lunch at twelve ever. <laughs> it doesn't exist. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was something I'm kind of proud of, and I and I'm here to stay. I'm not going to be going back to the U.S. at all.
0: So so that leads me on very nicely to my next question for you: Is what do you think is next for you? <laughs>
1: So, I don't know. I think I will be here, but I'm also very mobile. What I love about what happened during COVID is that suddenly everyone's very aware of how mobile we can all be. Even if you're at home, you can still interact with groups and organizations overseas, wherever. So I'm actually, this Friday actually, defending my PhD thesis. And so when that is done, my plan is to start teaching seminars on digital medicine, wherever it seems interesting. And I've had one conversation already with the university. So so I hope that can be a bit more of a percentage of my time moving forward to start sharing experiences and seeing also what new medical school students see as their role with digital medicine in the future. I also see myself cycling the Canary Islands. So, <laughs> I think that's definitely on on the radar.
0: Popular, <laughs> just chuck that in there.
1: Exactly. <laughs> you gotta have. <laughs> I gotta have those moments too. So,
0: so on that talk of teaching and paying it forward, is mentoring these new students coming into digital therapeutics something that ha- has helped you through the years and that you want to continue with?
1: Yeah. So I think. I mean, I'm happy to, to teach when I can. I think in a sense, though, that if you teach full time, you're no longer in the industry and you kind of lose sight of what's current. And so there's a balance there. And I think I've had exceptional luck in having an amazing advisor for my doctoral work. In fact, the the whole reason I did a PhD was, was upon her suggestion. And... This all happened when I was working at the Velvecce Hospital here in Barcelona and with the Interstitial Lung Disease Department. And we were working on a project, looking at a survey of patients with this certain disease. And she said, well, you could do a PhD on this. And I thought, well, really? And so I just didn't really believe it. but she supported me and and showed me kind of what's required and and that it wasn't so unapproachable and and also her junior staff they were amazing with helping me just look at how to how to utilize data and where the data could come from and so it's in great part to her and 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 the support of, of that institution that I could I could do this and so I definitely want to be able to help in that way but I don't know like but those are big shoes to fill
0: <laughs> I think being someone that is knowledgeable and passionate is inspiring in itself so I'm I'm pretty sure those shoes will be a comfortable fit for you I would say
1: <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that
0: the last question I have for you is what advice would you go back and give your younger self if you could
1: yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. And and I think about this because when I was in high school looking at what to do for university and my parents were the type that said, Okay, university's up to you. You can go where you want, but you're paying for it. <laughs> and so in the US, that's kind of a daunting proposition. But you know, off I went and studied art of all things. And they didn't say a word. <laughs> so <laughs> I got it in the end. It was art. It was art biology. But yeah, I kind of wish that I had focused a bit more on chemistry and engineering, just because now, I mean, unrelated to my work at present. But now, what I see is really interesting: is the idea of being a water desalination engineer. <laughs> so I really wish I knew more about that. I mean, it's kind of a flippant answer in a way, but but it's it's they're both areas I really do, which I wish knew more about, and I think. People ask me now, what could I study to get into pharma or what would be useful going forward? And there is actually worth, a, a worthwhile effort in, in, in looking into regulatory processes and the legal side of healthcare policy. So it may sound dry, but I think it's, it's so important for our societies. Anyone asking me, I would say chemical engineering or healthcare regulation.
0: And what about more generally for women in the industry? What advice would you give?
1: describing what you do is important because people may think that when they hear the word digital they think everything is easy and automatic but it really is not and that's taken a long time to get understood but yeah it's it's i think having a voice and and not selling yourself short is so important especially as women in this industry so i really appreciate the existence therefore of this podcast and yeah being able to showcase different perspectives especially women in the field.
0: Yeah. And from my perspective, I'm keen to get that female representation, that voice volume turned up loud. So I hugely appreciate you coming on and I would love to hear you speak more about this area because we focus very much on you personally. I would love to hear more about your thoughts on uh, digital therapeutics and the industry in general. Huge thank you for coming on to the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to get to know you. So thank you.
1: Thank you, Liv.
0: And that's it for another episode. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I'm off for the school holidays, so listen out for the next episode on Thursday the 20th of April after the Easter break. If you haven't done so yet and you're enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe or hit follow. It makes a huge difference. You can now also join This Girl Cam as a member, where you'll get invited to join recording sessions, regular mentions on the show, and discounted or free tickets to our live events. To find out more, head to patreon.com forward slash thisgirlcam. As always, you can go to thisgirlcam.com to see this interview in print and to find out who my guest will be from the 20th of April. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, all under thisgirlcam. Thanks again, everyone. Bye for now.